Sorry, I was just having like a coughing fit. That's always awesome right before you, <laughs> you record. Because you must have been on mute or something. I did. I muted myself. Oh, I, yeah. I'm I'll a, do the same. I'm a pro. <laughs> Today's guest on the podcast is Eric Weinmayer. Eric is the first blind person to reach the summit of Mount Everest. That's correct. Climbing Mount Everest. And not only that, he completed the seven summits, which is climbing to the highest point on every continent. But not only that, he's done a bunch of amazing physical adventures, including kayaking the Grand Canyon. But his most remarkable achievements are coming outside of the realm of climbing and athletics, really. He has this new summit called the No Barriers Summit, which is really challenging people to break through their barriers, whether they're physical emotional, mental, psychological, whatever barriers are in front of us, he is working through this organization to help people break through them. His new book is called No Barriers, and it's about his journey kayaking the Grand Canyon and beyond. So really fantastic read. Check out his summit. This is the No Barrier Summit, which is taking place in New York City next month. If you're listening to this when it just came out uh, into September, um, so you have a short time to register. But this is a totally free event that has incredible implications and possibilities for people wanting to break out of or break through the barriers that they have, whether they're physical, emotional, psychological. Um, this summit is about finding what barriers we have and how to break through them. So I hope you guys all enjoy this episode with Eric Weinmayer. He is truly an inspiration and I, for one, will be forever changed after speaking with him. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Eric Weinmayer. Hi, Eric. Hi. How are you? I had a big week. I don't know. I think I made myself sick. I <clears throat> had an awesome day in the mountains yesterday. Um, we had a, uh, a my, my teammate, Connor, organized a team of like 20 people. Um, there's a lady named Narissa who showed up at one of our No Barriers events. She's in a wheelchair. She wanted to climb one of our Colorado 14,000 foot peaks. So um, we organized a team of about 20 people to help push, pull, um, spot, and carry. And uh, we climbed uh, this beautiful 14,000 foot peak took all together called Beard's Cap. It took us five hours up and three hours down and she did the whole thing and everyone's tired today. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's really speedy. Uh, well, it's it's one of the easier ones, but it's like saying like friendliest great white shark, I guess. (laughs) Easiest Iron Man, friendliest great white. Yeah. Right. Well, that's amazing. So you're in Colorado. Yeah. I live in Golden, which is, uh, right at the foot of the Rockies. Very nice. Well, so let's talk about the, the story of you, the thing that you're probably tired of telling, but we got to give everyone some background on how awesome you are. So where did you come from? Well, I came from my mother, Ellen. Yeah. Mark. Um, <laughs> let's go back to that. Yeah, she was an amazing woman. She um, she grew up down south. She was uh, the soybean queen of Jay, Florida. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, she uh, married a uh, Yankee. Uh, my dad was in the Marines. He was a pilot. Uh, in the Navy base down in Pensacola. And uh, she had two kids, and uh, they moved up north. And uh, I came along soon afterwards. And uh, so I'm the product of a Southern Belle and a, and a Yankee uh, Marine aviator. <laughs> and uh, I, my dad uh, moved all around when I was a kid, uh, and uh, even to places like Hong Kong where he, he had an assignment. And so yeah, I got an exotic upbringing. Uh, I was born with this disease called retinoschisis. Um, my dad noticed that my eyes weren't really tracking that well when I was a kid, and uh, that led to a, you know, dozens of doctor visits. And uh, the final diagnosis was that I'd be blind by the time I was uh, 13, early teenager. And uh, there's no cure. There's nothing to be done. So uh, I spent uh, m- the next 10 years kind of uh, just, I guess, trying to avoid the 
idea that I'd be blind uh, by, by the time I was a teenager. So what was that? What was the decline like? Was it was it slow? Like you could see it coming or did it just happen one day? I could see it coming every day, you know, because yeah. you'd wake up, especially in middle school when I started losing sight. Um, you know, I'd go out and play in the playground or run around in the field and I'd come back and the light in the hallway would be so dark for my eyes. My eyes wouldn't adjust back. So I'd be blind for 10 minutes. I'd have to stand at the door until my eyes adjusted. And then I noticed that the whiteboard in school started, you know, the words started getting smaller and the print and books began to melt away. And, uh, then I woke up one day, I just come back from my grandmother's house in Florida and well, I, I was in my grandmother's house in Florida and, uh, and I, and I couldn't see to take a step. And, uh, my brother had to lead me home through the airport. I had to hang on to his shirt and I thought, Oh my gosh, it's, it's here. Like, you know, before that you avoid the topic entirely. Right. Because I think my brain's no different from anyone else's, you know, like your brain's really powerful, a powerful mechanism and it can, it can avoid any topic, uh, that it wants, uh, until, until it needs to tackle that thing. Right. What was that moment like? What, did did you think it was going to come back because it could kind of it would fade in and out, or did you know at that moment no, that was done? Like it was done when I had that moment where I couldn't take a step. I was like, "Wow, that's I'm blind." This, this is it. It's hard to imagine for me even now when I look back at it. You know, it's um, I when I in Connecticut you get these raccoons and they uh, they break through your screen door and they come into your house and uh and at nighttime it's really scary because they want to get into the garbage and sometimes you walk down there you hear like garbage getting knocked around in your kitchen and you come in and you corner them and they're they're like a you know this snarling animal that's been cornered yeah that's the way i've honestly felt i just felt like this sort of snarling primitive creature i couldn't really think i couldn't consciously like determine anything it was just all reaction and anger. Well, and especially, I mean, as a teenage boy, I mean, that's not the easiest time anyway, right? No, not at all. You know, so yeah, going into my freshman year in high school, I'd been blind. I'd gone blind the week before freshman year and just walking now through the hallways with a cane. And, you know, I was this new creature, you know, it was this new sort of thing, you know, I wasn't what I had been, you know, I walking with a cane and I had a mobility teacher who was walking around with me that was like, you know, leading me from class to class, leading me to the bathroom. Yeah, it was definitely not a great way to start school uh, as a freshman trying to, you know, get cool points. Yeah, yeah. So you joined the wrestling team. Like what what kind of transition was that from, I mean, when did you decide? Like at some point you were obviously angry and you said you're a cornered animal. But then at some point you said, hey, I guess I'll wrestle. (laughs) So what was that transition like? Well, what's interesting is that even though I was that sort of primitive creature just reacting, I never really lost like a sense of what I hoped my life could be. Mm. Um, And, you know, people, you know, have been asked before, like, you know, were you depressed? Like, were you just wanted to end it all or give up? And it's like, no, I got to say no. I even though life was miserable, I still had, I still held out hope for, you know, maybe something good in life. And, uh, so, you know, like when my mom said, Hey, you should look into a guide dog. Uh, I took her up on that and I got a guide dog my sophomore year in high school. I was the youngest kid in Connecticut to get a guide dog, beautiful German shepherd. And, uh, my dad would drive me up to this recreational program from Connecticut about three hours every month uh where we we would embark as all these blind kids on these adventures like you know uh cross-country skiing or ropes courses or even rock climbing uh and then uh when my brother said the captains of the wrestling team really thought it'd be cool if i tried out for wrestling uh, i'd heard of blind people could wrestle you know you could sort of i'd met a blind wrestler uh, my parents introduced me to this guy who was a blind, who had been a good college wrestler as a blind guy. And so I knew that that was possible at a high level. So I just tapped my cane. Um, it, it was right before I got my guide dog. I tapped my cane up the, 
hallway and walked into that stinky wrestling room and uh, <laughs> with like just the smell of farts and that sucks. <laughs> and I was home. I felt at home. I was really nervous. But the team uh, were so great. The captain of the wrestling team was uh, who turned out to be one of my best friends. He uh, his job he was like a little hundred and five pound guy. And he was a state champion, and he would line up against all the freshmen and absolutely humiliate them by pounding their heads into the mat. So I was just like third or fourth in line, and he whipped everyone out and pounded them, and then he pulled me out and pounded me too <laughs> to the mat. And I thought, thank you, thank you. You know, like you didn't baby me or treat me with, you know, special. You just drilled my head right into the <laughs> mat like everyone else. And uh, you're, this is my family. This is where I want to be. You are amongst farts and friends. It's great. <laughs> yeah, nothing better, right? I love the quote on your website, um, which said something about the, the first time you heard about blind climbing. Can you explain that? Well, um, or about I, the camp where they were teaching kids, taking blind kids. Yeah, they yeah. were. It was this recreational program that I mentioned uh, that my dad would drive me up to, and then one weekend they took us rock climbing, and I just was thinking, you know, I'd like to try things like fun things, adventure, you know, I still wanted adventure in my life. The thing that it's important maybe to understand about blindness is that nothing has changed except you're blind now. Now you have this brick wall in front of you and you don't know how to get through it, but you want to get through it. You want to live that exciting, adventuresome life. You're still the same person that you were before, but now you just don't know how to manifest it. And so, uh, so rock climbing, I showed up, I, was completely vulnerable. I didn't know anything about it. I remember thinking, how would you get yourself to stick to the rock face? And how would I find my way? And uh, I was I a I still wonder that. I still wonder how I can get myself to stick to the rock. So did you figure that yeah. out? <laughs> it, yeah, no, that's an ongoing equation of a puzzle trying to figure that out for right. sure. And even now I, <laughs> I thrash around up there, but, uh, um, anyway, but I, I loved it because it was, uh, it was finding this puzzle in the rock face. And for me, I couldn't see the face, but I could feel it with my hands and my feet. And I could sort of figure out the patterns and try to make predictions. Okay. Where I'm feeling something, maybe that crack extends, or maybe there's, you know, and I'd reach up and I'd scan my hand and I'd find hopefully the next hold. And, um, and then I would hang and lock off and do another high step and find my foothold with my next hand. And, and and so I just kind of slowly worked my way up this rock face and forgot about time and forgot about blindness and forgot about uh, um, anything else but this beautiful process uh, that's just so deeply committing and engaging. And, um, and then I got to the little ledge, maybe 100 feet off the ground. I sat there and I could uh, – I was already starting to learn about what – blind people call echolocation, which is where you you listen to the sound, the sound vibrations bouncing off of things. And I could hear the sound vibrations bouncing off of the forest below. And, you know, I could hear the town below and I could hear the valley below me and I could hear the wind and the leaves. It was fall. So the leaves were blowing, the beautiful fall leaves. And uh, I just thought, wow, this is stunning. And this is the opposite of what I thought blindness would be like. And so I kept on climbing. And so how old were you when you started climbing? I was 16. Okay. But I wouldn't say I really started. I had my first experience. And then after that, you're like, well, how do I continue to climb? You know, I was full on wrestling and I, you know, would climb like once a year. I'd go up and this nice guide in New Hampshire would, uh, you know, take me up a rock face and uh, he was just took me under his wing and uh but I didn't and I did that through college but then when I graduated from college and I just didn't really know what to do I went and got a master's degree in education and um taught at a school in the day and went to school at night and at that point I went to a job fair and I got an offer in Phoenix and and I thought okay wow the west that would be really cool you know I'm, I don't know anything about that area except that it's like a desert with rocks all around it amazing rock climbing and so uh so i took that job and i moved out west and uh i i started becoming what we call a weekend warrior which is uh i started i joined the arizona mountaineering club and started climbing with them 
every weekend for the next couple of years. And so where did that lead? I met a friend. Uh, he was a substitute teacher at my school. His name is Sam Bridgem. And he was a really cool guy. He was kind of a wacky guy. Yeah, he, he's just like a, a, a nutcase. Like he'd, you know, um, <clears throat> he'd, he'd follow like, you know, the Grateful Dead around. And he's just really. <laughs> we all have one of those friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a really cool guy. And he also had attention deficit disorder. So he had never really done that well in school because he said it was like a lot of different radio stations playing at the same time in his head. He got really distracted. Most people just hear one station at a time. And uh, he said by hanging by his fingertips, you know, 100 feet off the ground for the first time in his life, he could really focus. And so he, he, he liked climbing with me because it brought more focus to him, you know, as he told me where the holds were and as he, you know, tried to tell me about the trail, you know, as we hiked our way to the base of the rock face. And we were great partners and I, I really appreciated him. And uh, we got to the top of this rock face one day and he said, wow, you know, dude, he goes, you're climbing really well. He goes, we should do something bigger together. And I thought, well, like, what do you mean? Like maybe a bigger rock face? And he said, how about Denali? Oh, wow. And, and I was like, Sam, you really do have it, ADD, because like, Denali is such a leap from, you know, rock climbing in the desert. I never even hardly camped out in the snow except like as a Boy Scout uh, in Connecticut, like one weekend. Right. And, uh, and so, but, but Sam had this sort of dreamy nature of like, let's go from A to Z and let's make this happen. And I have very like kind of German linear brain, like, okay, let me map out from A to Z what that looks like. And uh, so we started training. And uh, sure enough, after a ton of failures, after a ton of learning, a year and a half later, after 19 days, I summited Denali with Sam and, uh, and summited, uh, it was 1995, it turned out to be Helen Keller's birthday when we stood on top. Uh, oh. Denali's the tallest mountain in, in North America, it's 20,300 feet, so it was the hardest, hardest thing I had ever done, uh, just crushingly hard. I loved one of the quotes, I think it was in your documentary, where you said, um, when you were describing what it's like to be on the top of the mountain, the wind and the air, and you said, I don't get a lot of, you said you get a lot of scenery, but it's just not visual. And I thought that was really just amazing the way you described it, and especially just kind of how you could feel the mountains around you. It was really incredible. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that happens to people and it gets harder as things change as you get older. Um, but you you begin to think about yourself in the past. And, you know, like a lot of dead-end questions, like what, what if I could have seen or what if I could enjoy the, the world through my eyes? And I've met a lot of people, and especially in my latest book, No Barriers, I explored a, this idea a lot with different pioneers that I had met throughout my adventures and they kind of have to let this thing die. You know, this old, maybe we're all, it doesn't matter whether you're going blind or going deaf or, you know, something really catastrophic is happening. Maybe it's, maybe our lives are a constant sort of process of, of letting go of letting things die, you know, mm. like taking, the stake and stabbing it through that heart of whatever that is you want to kill. And then that enables you to move forward. And I think I did a pretty good job doing that with blindness. I'm a very much a pragmatist. So I said, look, I'm not going to get beauty out of my eyes anymore. Like that's done. So yeah. stab through the heart and say goodbye to that. And I'm going to experience beauty and information and joy all that through my other senses. So how do I do that? Uh, and man, it's been a great exploration of taking my hand off on these giant ice faces. You know, you're thousands of feet off the ground and you're running your hand across these beautiful columns, these tree trunks of, of ice that are forming in space. And you're just stunned by how beautiful that is. Uh, or what you said, that uh, idea of sensing the mountains through my ears, you know, the echo uh, on Everest uh up at 22,000 feet, I sat outside my tent one night. Um, we were heading up higher, but we couldn't get up. We, we decided to abort that foray because 
there was a big storm and there was a lightning storm happening in the coom, which is the valley below me. And every time the lightning struck, the I, I, it gave me this crisp idea of what that valley looked like. I could hear the mountains. I could hear the you know the the lightning bouncing off of the the different mountains and the valley below, and it just gave me this really beautiful picture in my head. And, and so, yeah, you use what you got, and you make it work, and you make that your your life. When did you make the decision to tackle Everest? So, '95, you did Denali. And at that point, did your friend just say, hey, dude, we should do Everest? <laughs> like, how did it happen? Huh. Well, I had been training a lot and I'd climbed all, you know, I read this book called uh, The Seven Summits by this guy named Dick Bass. And he had pretty much just made up this thing of going around and climbing the tallest peak in every continent. And I thought, man, would that be cool? I mean, it's so wildly unrealistic for me as a blind person. But still, I mean, how cool to pursue this great adventure, you know, taking me to every continent of the world. So I started climbing the seven summits and, uh, I did Aconcagua. It took me two tries to get to the top of that South America, climbed Kilimanjaro, um, and, uh, was working my way around the world and doing a ton of other climbs off the beaten path. I was teaching for six years and, uh, I, I, I love teaching. I could have done it forever, but I thought, you know, there's some climbs that I need to do in the winter and it's not fair to my students. And so I, I made this hard decision to quit teaching and pursue life in the mountains, thinking maybe I could somehow get by with endorsements or, uh, you know, um, speaking or maybe writing. You know, I didn't know exactly how to put it together, but it, it wasn't really something a, maybe a, an, you know, a venture capitalist would have bet on, but that was 97 and I've been making it work uh, ever since though more than 20 years now so um, so anyway I climbed the set bunch of the seven summits and then you know thought I mean at 30 like maybe I could do Everest I don't know you know a lot of people said there were you know dozen reasons why it was a terrible idea but most of the people that I climb with even a couple of them who had who had tried Everest or summited Everest said, you know, you're more qualified than 90% of the people on that mountain. Like, you deserve a shot. And so uh, I, it slowly began to kind of realize itself when I met uh, this guy named Pasquale, PV, Pasquale Vincent Scaturo. Mm -hmm. And he was an amazing adventure swashbuckler. And he lived in Denver. And he just, like, looked at me. And we had maybe five minutes we had been talking. He said, dude, you ever think Everest? And I said, yeah, dude. And he said, dude, I'll organize your team. I said, thanks, dude. And I was, <laughs> there's a lot of dudes and a lot of, a lot of, dudes, uh, a lot lot of high fives. Of, yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, he, we, we formed the team and, and, uh, I was lucky on my first attempt on Everest, uh, that, uh, we were able to summit, uh, on May 24th. Uh, it's ancient history now. It's back in 2001. When you started out on Everest, like a lot of people probably know by now, but you have several base camps and you spend, you know, decent amount of time in each one, you know, was there at any point that you thought I can't do this or are you the type of person who just believes in your heart that you've got it? I mean, where, what, what was your mental state like during, during the climb? I've met people, a few anomalies in my life. Like when I, we'll, we'll get this later, but I kayaked the Grand Canyon with this guy, a blind guy named Lonnie Bedwell. And you know, I asked him, like, when you're going through these giant rapids, I go, what's your fear level? Like, one to ten. Not me, I'm like an eight. And he's like, oh, about a two. <laughs> I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I'm not one of those people immune to fear and doubt. Um, in fact, the way that I've handled all of that is that I understand it's sort of a part of the brain. It's it's how the brain works. It wants to keep you safe, you know. Uh, the amygdala, you know, just wants to be primitive and sort of like, you know, retreat and keep you in a nice, safe place, fight or flight. Right. And, and then, you know, I've had this fortunate ability to kind of almost maybe in a way unrealistically just have this vision of what I thought could be. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I know it's, it's out there somewhere. I don't even know if it's possible, but I know it's out there as potential. And so it's like walking these two sides of 
of a, of a mountain ridge. One side is sort of the fear and doubt that your brain naturally creates. And the other side is this sort of, sort of deep aspirational desire to be something bigger, better than what you are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's sort of like a schizophrenia, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but a lot of people probably know what I'm talking about. Cause I imagine most people have this same thing. Um, my friend Chris Morris says, you know, when you stand at the base of a mountain, you are looking up at this incredibly difficult thing and you have to sort of do this mental gymnastics where you see all the all the pitfalls and all the things that dangers, all the risks, all the potential things that can hold you back. Yeah, you have to figure out a way to believe through it to the top of that mountain. It it, it really is kind of a schizophrenia. Uh, that you have to play in your brain. Do you think it's a slight advantage? And this seems like a silly question, but is it a slight advantage that you can't see the mountain when you stand at the base of it? Maybe, yeah. I mean, because in a way, I don't think it matters. I try to make everything an advantage, right? I mean, uh, you know, like when I'm rock climbing, I'm working way hard, you know, I'm feeling every step. Like I can't look up the rock face and see that great what they call a thank God hold, like sitting in on the rock and I just need to gun for it. I can't see that. I have to feel my way up this thing. And it's, yeah, if you look at it in terms of pros and cons, a lot more cons than pros. Sure. Forget analytics, right? I just am so thankful and so happy to be out there climbing at a high level. Uh, that gives me a kind of energy that I think is an advantage. Mm-hmm. And I try to bring that energy and that advantage to everything I do, even if I'm like a huge underdog. Yeah. You use the word pioneering a lot. What does pioneering mean to you? I've met a lot of true pioneers throughout my my journeys. Um, it's fun to find pioneers in the modern world. You know, you can look to the past at like people like Edmund Hillary who climbed Everest and Tenzing Norgay who climbed Everest first and um, explorers of the past, right? But as we, as more things get understood and familiar, it's harder to be a pioneer. So um, I've been lucky to meet lots of pioneers in the modern world, and a lot of them have to do with sort of tragedy, I guess. Um, going out and unfortunately getting beat down, which happens to a lot of us, but two pioneers I met who were seminal in my life were Mark Wellman and Hugh Herr. Um, Mark Wellman was a climber and he fell and he broke his back. Uh, he, he was a paraplegic and then he wanted to climb again. Uh, he, he, his friend and him went out and they would explore how to do this. And eventually the system that they figured out was that his friend would anchor the rope and then Mark would do pull-ups up this pull-up bar. He would, he would have an ascender connected to his chest harness so that when he pushed the bar up and it would slide up the rope, it would lock off and then he would pull himself up and then he would lock off on this ascender. And then there's a series of pull-ups that he did up the rock face and uh, he climbed Del Capitan. Oh my goodness. 3,000 feet of overhanging granite and he did it uh, in seven days. They said he, they estimate he did 8,000 pull-ups. <laughs> and I can't even get one. What in the world? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so that's pioneer. And then yeah. uh, Hugh was uh, a double leg amputee who lost his legs in the mountains. And he, after a lot of soul searching, a lot of darkness, he realized that he wanted to go back to school because he had been building his own prosthetic legs in his garage that enabled him to climb <clears throat> and rubber feet that um, he could wedge into cracks. And that kind of that that tinkering, that engineering that he loved, it led him to think, well, maybe I do want to go back to school and learn how to do this even better. And he worked his way through his Ph.D. program, bioengineering, and now he runs the biomechatronics laboratory at MIT and uh, and and uh, builds the most sophisticated prosthetic legs in the world and also climbs at this incredibly high level. So, yeah, those are pioneers. Those are the folks that I got together with to start No Barriers, uh, this organization and movement that's so important to my life today. But, you know, I do think that that kind of spirit isn't, you know, just 
excluded included just people like Mark and Hugh. I think it I think it extends to all of us, you know, in terms of our approach. Uh, I don't think you have to be building your own legs or I don't think you have to have gone through this terrible tragedy. But I think being a pioneer in the modern world is sort of like figuring out a way, which we all want to do, to engineer our future. And that really gets down into the nitty gritty, you know, you know like how do you build the systems and the strategies and the tools and the technologies and then integrate them together to make yourself faster and more productive and better, safer, more nimble. You know, what are all those techniques that you bring together in your life? And like a kind of a map mm-hmm. that, that you can use. And I, and, and as a blind person, I do this constantly, you know, I'm constantly trying to figure out what that map looks like. And, uh, that can be frustrating, but it can also be really fun. Yeah. Well, let's talk about no barriers for a little bit. Tell me a little that you've got the summit coming up, um, next month, right? October. Yeah. No barriers has um, started out with me and Hugh and Mark and it was a really started out as a question, you know, which is how do you break through barriers in our lives? Just like I was talking about before, what's that map? You know, is there a map that you can, that you can build? Is there something that unites us all? And can we together sort of figure out how to, how to build the pieces of that map and, and, and live kind of a purposeful life and become sort of the best version of ourselves. And, so we started growing this movement and we started doing events and programs and expeditions with veterans and uh, who had been injured and youth and kids who had had challenges. Uh, and we soon realized pretty quickly that most of the world don't have physical disabilities like me. Most of those barriers are invisible. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so we've really expanded our community, I would say physical disability is a small part of our community now, minority, but the bigger majority is people who have lost family members to war or violence or people who have had trauma, um, uh, kids who have survived certain things, um, people who struggle with anxiety or fear or doubt, or just people who are lost right? They're just kind of lost and they need yeah. direction. They need something in their lives. So yeah, it's been this really fun, eclectic movement that we've built. And, and so uh, we've had these big events called our summit and they're always in beautiful mountain settings. We usually get about a thousand people, but we decided as an organization, like if we were going to really make a big impact in the world, we got to come to the cities. We got to come and meet people where most of us live. And so we decided to take this big leap and go to New York City. So October 5th and 6th, we'll have our big No Barriers Summit in Manhattan. And it's really a celebration of this idea of no barriers. You know, we bring together speakers and activities and uh, and, and uh, innovations and clinics and, uh, and, and music and art all to celebrate this No Barriers life. Um, like, so we'll have Mandy Harvey, who's a become a good friend of mine. She is uh, a totally profoundly deaf mu- uh, musician, uh, songwriter and singer. Uh, and she, you know, is just the picture of no barriers because she uses the visual cues with her band to know when to come in and out. She sings a lot of times barefoot so she can feel the vibration through the stage, through the instruments. She uh, tests out learning songs by with with this app that uh, gives you know tells her whether her voice is on pitch or not. Wow. So just this incredible map that she has built to become just this rare person. Uh, we have Sam uh, Schmidt coming in, who was uh, he, he was a quad he's a quadriplegic. He was hurt in a race car accident, and with the help of this amazing company Aero Technology, they built a car that he races still and he does it just with his eye movements. Wow. Far over a hundred miles an hour. Uh, so we have folks again with the physical challenges, but we also have a lot of people that have gone through struggles and darkness and have been able to figure out how to climb out of it and have a lot to teach the world. I think it's a really positive message for the world because we're like really mired in doubt and fear right now. Right. It's like a real, even nationally, even as a whole, 
population in America. Uh, but no barriers is just this, I think, and I'm totally biased, but I just think <laughs> it's the perfect message for all of us to come together and say, like, let's celebrate the spirit of what really makes us great, you know, which is innovation and which is this pioneering stuff we talked about, which is, uh, you know, this idea that we can take dark things and turn them into light, uh, that we can find a way to build amazing communities and teams and movements and that we can really give back and elevate the world in profound ways, no matter who you are, what your background or circumstances are. Well, I honestly think that even if someone can't attend the summit, they should just go through the registration process because I went through it this morning because I'm, I'm thinking about coming. But um, just seeing the list of the seminars and the events was enough to kind of trigger my primal responses. Like, for example, the one that was singing and dancing and <laughs> the, the Broadway stuff. And th there were so many amazing sessions that I, I could feel fear, you know, just even reading it. Yeah. I thought, oh my gosh, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly, you know, take part in a singing section. I mean, but yes, I could. Why not? Yeah. You know, I think that's what's so cool about it. That clinic is going to be led by this amazing lady. Uh, she has a reality TV show. She, I think she had a tumor that, 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 um, was, that, that made her gain a lot of weight. Yeah. And so she, um, has this show and I think it's called like my big fat fabulous life or something. Yeah. Like. Yeah. 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 I think she's that's totally it. amazing because she's like, look, I mean, like, I think the message is like, this is a challenge for me. This is a barrier, but I'm not going to like sit on the sidelines mm -hmm. and be in this dark place just because I'm heavy. I'm going to celebrate my life and I'm, I'm going to celebrate all the things I can do as I aspire towards something else. But along the way I'm happy and yeah. I'm comfortable. And now I have a daughter. She just started, Colorado State University and uh you know so I feel like I have a little firsthand knowledge and uh with this idea of body image I think guys have it too in our different ways but um um uh, but anyway just this idea of striving for a summit while at the same time being happy with who you are because none of us are going to be supermodels or Lance Armstrong you know most right. of us you know so we got to be comfortable and happy with the person along the way and uh so I think we all struggle with a bit of that yeah, I think so too. And and the enormous pressure we put on ourselves and, and I'm, I'm so guilty of this because I have huge goals and all these things I want to accomplish. But in the past, I would be really hard on myself and not be able to be grateful for the present. And, and that is truly the, the place you want to get to. I mean, never stop trying, never stop moving forward, but to find that gratitude and, and to be yeah. present. Yeah. Or schizophrenia. Right. <laughs> <laughs> more schizophrenia it's true I want to go back to Everest for a little bit and just because this is such an incredible thing you did I mean what I want to hear what the best part of the climb was what was the worst and what was the scariest and maybe the worst and the scariest are the same thing but I just want some some anecdotes from that <laughs> well for me I mean the the hardest part and the hardest part for a lot of people is the Kumbu icefall it's it's right out of base camp the glacier kind of it's not really quite the glacier. The glacier comes down the western coom, and it and it kind of gets squeezed between rocks, and then it drops off a cliff, and it kind of falls like a whitewater river, but a river of ice that kind of explodes down the down the face, and you have to cross through that. It's like two thousand feet, and so think of a glacier, a nice smooth glacier, and then blow up an atom bomb in the middle of it and you have the kumbu icefall mm -hmm. this blind person's worst nightmare right uh, and uh so every step is like stepping from boulder ice boulder to ice boulder they're rolling and shifting under your feet the trail sometimes collapses under you there's tons of crevasses you're zigzagging on these little snow bridges that, of ice that are the width of your boot and uh you, you know there's tons of seracs so you have to move higher uh, really fast because there's these big splinters of ice that are falling down constantly over the trail and collapsing. Um, and so I had to cross through the ice fall uh, 10 times up and down because you have to acclimatize. You get your body used to breathing less and less oxygen. So you have to keep going up and down through the ice fall. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And the first time I climbed through the ice fall, it took me 13 hours 
it was way too long. I was just totally thrashed. I was felt like I was going to pass out on top of it all. Um, coming into camp one above it, I'd struggled in there and I tripped over this little crack, a little tiny crevasse with my crampon point and I fell forward and my friend tried to reach out and grab me and he was tired too. And he had a, he had an ice axe in his hand and he blasted me in the nose with his ice axe as he grabbed me. Oh no. So I think my nose was broken because my nose been bent ever since then, but it was just <laughs> gushing blood, blood just pouring down my. You haven't had your nose checked. It's, I get uglier every year um, with all my scars and broken, bent parts. But anyway, um, so yeah, so it it was uh, it it was a bad day. It just felt like I was going to pass out. And um, my friend, our team leader P- PV, said, you know, like if he can't get a faster time through the ice fall, then I think we've got to seriously consider, you know, ending the expedition because you can't spend all that time there. And for me, that was a low point um, because you know you're thinking that's it, you know, and you're thinking like the ice fall just completely kicked my butt and uh, what am I going to do? How am I going to, how could I even, I'm so overwhelmed by this mountain. Uh, so that was definitely a low point. Mm-hmm. So what was the high point? <laughs> I think I know what it is. Probably when you got home and got a shower. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the high point was maybe realizing that you have these you do have a low point no matter what, you know, and how do you sort of figure out how to wake up the next day and then kind of renew yourself, even though you're almost broken, you know, from the day before. Uh, and, uh, and I think I learned a lot about how the brain works, you know, on that trip, because like I was into, I was an English major and I loved books like The Odyssey when Odysseus is coming back from the Trojan Wars and he hears the island of the sirens, you know, these maidens. You've probably mm-hmm. heard the story. They sing out and all the sailors jump off the ship and they're swimming towards this great, beautiful sound. And you, they realize, sadly, that these maidens are monsters and they're gobbled up. And so I think I learned a lot about how the, the brain is like like these sirens. You know, it's just always trying to keep you safe and you can't trust your brain right because your Mm -hmm. brain is just going to keep trying to keep you in this nice prison uh so that you can have long life and longevity and uh and in the modern world especially you know it's that's tricky it's a tricky balance right it's your your brain wants to retreat down the mountain and you realize that those maidens are monsters they're kind of pulling you away from your dreams. So, um, I, I thought a lot about that and, you know, and how the brain like does this thing called like my friend, Paul Stoltz, who's this amazing, uh, leadership development guy calls it catastrophizing, which is like where you think like, Oh my God, today is bad. Tomorrow's going to be worse, you know? (laughs) And you're just, your brain is just constantly screwing with you to be honest with you. So it, it becomes kind of a spiritual process of, Am I my brain? Am I all those like crazy cat, you know, chaotic things, conflicting things, or am I something higher? Like, is there something bigger? Is there something I aspire to that's beyond that? So I think Everest taught me a lot about that sort of that spiritual struggle that we are all in the midst of. Was was Mount Everest your Everest? I mean, was that your big thing, or is that constantly evolving for you? Well, I was 33 years old, and so, yeah, I'd stood on the top of the world, and it was incredible. And uh, What did it feel like? Well, like, <clears throat> descriptively, you said that you don't get a lot of scenery, or you get a lot of scenery that's not visual, so what was it like standing up there? Well, it was a fulfillment of three months of, and then two years of training. And so you stand on the summit and you can't believe that you're there. Your brain hasn't really even caught up to your body. Your body is standing there. Your brain only summits maybe like a week later, you know, it's sort of come <laughs> in little pieces. Uh, and you're on this little island in the sky the size of a single car garage. And uh, 
you know, I, I listen to the sound of space up there and sound vibrations just moving infinitely through space. There's nothing for them to bounce off of. There's no other peaks that high. So it's this sort of vast sound, kind of an infinite sound, like you've been swallowed by sky. And it's really beautiful and awe-inspiring and sort of scary. But you only hang out for like 15 minutes because there's always storm clouds coming in and you got to get down. Humans aren't right. really be up there, you know? Right. <laughs> so you get out of there really fast. You do your hugs and you're crying and you're flag holding and you get out of there. And yeah. it's very anticlimactic if you think about it in that way. Um, so when I got down from the mountain, uh, PV, I got through the ice fall that last time and PV brought me aside. And he said, hey, Eric, uh, you know, do me a favor. And I was like thinking, okay, PV, I'm going to sign. You're like, you want me to sign your hat or something, right? <laughs> and he said, don't make Everest the greatest thing you ever do. And that was the greatest advice anyone could have ever done for me. And that's how I began the newest book, No Barriers, because, you know, hey, you have, if you're lucky, you have some successes sprinkled throughout your life. But then how do you not use those as the memorial, the, 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 the funeral, yeah. you know, uh, the museum, but use them as a catalyst to go to new places. And, and so PV, his challenge was the beginning of that for me. How do I take Everest and these mountains that I've climbed? How do I, in a way, not just use them to like a resume to pound my chest and go, look at me, what I did blind, like, aren't I great, you know? <laughs> that, that sort of becomes sort of shallow in a way. But to bring those gifts down the mountain and use them to do something in your life. And so no barriers sprang from that. The Grand Canyon, my kayak journey down the Grand Canyon. Um, so many great things in my life, like adopting my son, Arjun, from Nepal. Um so many great things in my life where became the, the, the sort of the river that flowed out of that experience. It's really interesting when you work so hard toward one goal. I mean, I, a lot of my audience are triathletes. And so, um, you know, the big goal in triathlon is often Ironman and it goes beyond Ironman. But when you do something that, you know, seems like the goal you've been searching for all these years and then you accomplish it, to look beyond it is sometimes you just, you know, people fall into depression and they think, yeah. well, I did that. Now what? And I think that is such great advice. Don't make Everest the best thing you ever did. Don't make the best thing you ever did. The best thing you ever did. Like <laughs> just, just keep, you know, finding bigger, not, not necessarily bigger goals, but like you said, things that come out of it, like your son. And I mean, that's, that's what life is. It's not always just these accomplishments. I think you're right. I think it's, I guess, big, bigger, broader point is that it's so easy to get stuck. Yeah. There's a million things that can stick you. And you, you get shoved to the sidelines. And you're in a place you don't want to be. And that can happen at any point. It's such a tenuous thing. And so for No Barriers, the message was how do we continue to climb to grow to evolve to innovate to challenge ourselves and how to how do you sort of carry along on that journey that is like a river like using the energy of it to propel you forward and i'll tell you that journey the, the map that i talked about it's not a nice neat map it's a very messy map with a lot of backflips and a lot of holes that suck you down in a river mm -hmm. a lot of whirlpools <laughs> A lot of things that throw you in all kinds of crazy directions. Uh, so it's not a perfect map, but it maybe is a messy map. Yeah. Uh, that with a lot of post-it notes on it. With a lot of post-it notes on it. I always think that's my map. Just uh, I met this guy that I wrote about in the book called Andy Parkin. He's a friend of mine. I've climbed with him before. He was in this devastating accident, and he thought he'd never climb again. And he was in his hotel room in a wheelchair 
Uh, he lived in Chamonix, France, so he could see the mountains out of his window, and he would just roll, roll his wheelchair up to the mountains, and he'd watch them, thinking that's as close as I'll ever get again. And then he got so bored, he started painting. Uh, and then over time, he kind of worked his way out of the chair. He started hobbling up to the base of the mountain, and he started painting the mountains and collecting old cables that were laying around and making sculptures out of them. And uh, he eventually became a climber again, never quite the same as he was before, but in the process, he became an artist. He is a really famous artist. Uh, he has a big studio outside of Chamonix. So uh, to me, that's the unexpected map that's so hard to foresee in our lives because, you know, he had this very linear path. I got to get back to climbing, got to get back to climbing. Mm -hmm. And in the process, he became an artist. That's the beautiful alchemy of the whole thing. Yes, the process. And, and so No Barriers is a lot about that process. And it's, it's really hard because when people get stuck, they think they, the way out is just to, you know, oh, I got to climb another Everest. But that really becomes very unfulfilling yes. in a way. It's just more of the same. And then it's, I got to do something harder and more challenging and bigger. And I got to top myself. And it just, it's, it's a roadmap for, I think, uh, being underwhelmed. Yeah. And so I think it's a different kind of map that you allow that energy of the thing to propel you forward to something new. That's almost hard to see. Uh, and I think that's, that's just incredible. That's an incredible part of the process. Well, I think it goes back to what you said at the beginning that it's it's learning the art of letting go and you know stabbing. I think you said stabbing it whatever in the heart and and letting that die. But I, I think so many of us get stuck because of of what you just said too that we were we're never quite the same as we were before and and we get get stuck on that. I mean, for example, I did Olympic style weightlifting back in the day. I was pretty good and I picked it back up a year ago. Well, if I'm going to get stuck on never quite the same as I was in my late teens, <laughs> now that I'm almost 40, I mean, I'm not going to get anywhere, but it's about this journey of becoming who I am now. And, and that's, I'm taking so much joy in that because it's, it's funny, it's ugly, it's painful, but I have to let go of that person I was because you know, she's gone. <laughs> she's not 17 anymore. And um, that's been a big part of my learning process. And then I, with what you were saying, I think about the book, The Obstacle is the Way. I'm sure you've read it. But that, you know, the main thing in our path is exactly the way that we need. It's what we need to get to where we want to go. And, and it seems like you've definitely embraced that. I was thinking about that yesterday, climbing this 14,000 foot peak with uh, Narissa um, thinking and one side, you know, turn 50 in a week and, uh, like, man, my back hurts. This, this mountain needs to be easy. <laughs> my back hurts. Oh, my right knee it sure hurts every time I step down. And I just had a hip surgery because uh, I wore my right hip out. And so, you know, but anyway, all these things, right. And then at the same time, really the experience being helping this incredible lady to reach the summit. Uh, so yeah, life changes. And you got to sort of embrace the evolution of it. And you're right. Find a way to to kill that thing uh, so you don't dwell on it. Yeah. What do you believe about personal limits? I, I think I have sort of a nuanced version of personal limits, you know, because um, I don't believe in this you know, the silly kind of like motivational posters, you know, <laughs> if you think, you know, if you believe it, you can do it or like, you know, anything is possible. You know, I just, I think this sort of modern world is like, we love to just fill ourselves with these little, uh, motivational slogans and it takes a lot of hard work. <laughs> yeah. If anything were possible, I'd probably be racing NASCAR. <laughs> and that's not going to happen for me. So it's more about what can you do? And what's that process where you figure out what can you do? And that's a very, very blurry line. And it's a really fun line to take on. 
because if I had just t- stuck to the things that I thought I could do as a blind person, my life would have been very limited. Yeah. Um, but so kind of taking on that blurry line and figuring out what you can do, man, that'll, that'll take you your whole life. <laughs> yeah. But thinking about the obstacles, the way, I mean, do you think you would have accomplished all of this as a sighted person? Or do you think it was, was the fact that you lost your vision that propelled you yeah. forward? Well, as I mentioned before, you know, like sometimes like a success like Everest can be the catapult to new things or it can be the thing that stops you. Mm-hmm. I think uh, adversity can be the thing that stops you or it can be the thing that propels you. Um, both have equal potential to stop you in your tracks or propel you to a new place. So I definitely think that sometimes when adversity strikes, like I went blind, it forced me to dig into something that maybe would have been much harder to find in any other way. So yeah, maybe going blind, um, sort of sparked things sort of like how, you know, they, they forge metal, you know, and you need that process of forging to make it stronger. So, yeah, no, I definitely wonder that myself. If I hadn't gone blind, maybe I would have never turned to the mountains. Nobody in my family ever had be, been a climber. Yeah. So what motivates you to go forward? Is it is it joy? Is it this seeking new adventures? Or do you ever have sort of a you need to prove it to the world. Like, are you on a mission to prove anything or is it do it for the joy of it? <laughs> I think that proving message as you get older gets boring. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. yeah it kind of gets boring. Like maybe in my twenties, I wanted thirties. I wanted to prove to myself. So now it's a lot of less, less of a lot about proving things to myself or the world or then, then it is about spreading this no barriers idea in the world, um, you know, like yesterday, back to this 14,000 foot peak, it took 20 strong people to get this amazing lady to the summit. Yeah. For her, it was like this big stretch because she was this doer, right? When she could walk. And she told me, <clears throat> Eric, you know, like, I'm really full of anxiety because you're organizing 20 people to help me get to the summit and I'm not a very good helpee. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard for me. Right. If, if you would ask me to help somebody in a chair to get to a 14,000 foot peak, I would have jumped on it. But but now that I'm in a chair, I feel really uncomfortable and I I don't know how I should feel about this. So for her, it was like this big reach. And for the team, it was like this really big reach, you know, all these people, how are we going to figure this stuff out? Some of it we planned, some of it we figured out on the fly and we got lucky with the weather and the conditions and we we reached the summit all together and that hopefully becomes a catalyst in her life and then all the people that touched her life yesterday so for me that's really more what it's about right it's a, it's a, it's it's not about proving it's about celebrating um what we can do when we approach things in the right way in a very authentic way, not in a BS kind of way. Like there's too much BS in the world, I think, right now. And, yeah. you know, trying to do things really authentically. And there's, you know, how do you, there's a lot of bleeding and flailing uh, in, in that process. <laughs> flailing, yes, flailing. That's my word. <laughs> I, love the, I love the word flailing. It's so accurate. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the Grand Canyon a little bit before we go. Um how did that come about? So you went from mountains and ice to rivers and water. <laughs> Discuss. Well, yeah, I was climbing a big ice face in Nepal with a friend of mine. We were cold and hungry and miserable. And my friend's like, hey, you know, you should think about rivers. It's a wonderful way to bring your family along on a raft. And and he goes, kayaking is really cool and exciting. And, you know, usually you're warm, you know, like it's sunny. You're kayaking in the sun. He's, you know, and you can bring beer along. <laughs> So I thought, okay, that's cool. That's intriguing. And, you know, I'd been away a lot. My kids, I wanted to figure out a way for us to all be able to travel as a, as a, as a posse. And so I started learning to kayak and then he started guiding me down smaller rivers and I'd be learning to kayak my friend's 
my family would be in the raft. Um, and, uh, and we had these wonderful adventures as a family. And, uh, and eventually after six years, I, I, uh, kayaked the Grand Canyon, which is really, really big water, uh, with a friend of mine named Lonnie Bedwell. He was a blind Navy veteran. So the two of us had these great team of friends who rallied around us and talked to us for me via these radios, uh, that talked to me in real time, almost real time. Um, so that you, you know, you don't have a big delay in the command that you can charge into a rapid or take a left, a fast left or a right, uh, whatever you need to do. And so, uh, yeah, we, we, we kayaked the Grand Canyon in 20 days and, uh, and if we ask people along the way to take what we call our no barriers pledge, which is like, what are you going to pledge to do in your life? Uh, as a result of, uh, you know, of, of, um, your no barriers life. And so we had thousands of people that pledged along the way and it was really a cool experience. That's awesome. Were you and Lonnie, did you share a kayak or were you in separate? No, kayaks? separate kayaks. Okay. Yeah. And he was crazy. Like <laughs> there are these parts of the river that you want to avoid called holes. Yeah. Yeah. I would avoid those. Yeah. <laughs> they pretty good. Hold you down. He'd say, Oh, send me right into that hole. I want to feel what it's like. I'm like, <laughs> dude, you're crazy. So he's what you call a crazy blind guy. Well, he's the one with the fear meter of a two and you're at an eight, right? <laughs> yeah. And if I were being, honest, I was probably at a 12. <laughs> so what was, what was the hardest adventure so far? Was it Everest or was it the holes in the Grand Canyon? <laughs> I'd say it was neither. It was no. adopting my son, Arjun. Um, the process that we went through to go to Nepal, really? to go through this whole process. There's a million things you have to complete. Um, there's a, so many steps in the process, so many things that potentially could go wrong. So many times throughout that process, meeting him in the orphanage, trying to figure out all the red tape to get him home. Oh, so many times I thought, you know, I wish I could climb Everest if, and summit and just bring this kid home or ski across the Greenland ice sheet. And that would enable me to bring this kid home. But life is harder off the mountain. Mm-hmm. It's more nuanced. There's more it's less black and white. And so thank God I had my wife that's very systematic and really like going through all the steps. Um, and, uh, there was a long delay because in the middle of that process, there was a revolution. There was a civil war, excuse me, in Nepal, the Maoists and the, uh, were, were fighting, uh, um, the, the uh, Royal family and the army and, um, so the whole process got delayed for like a, a year. So a long time, we didn't even think we were going to be able to bring this kid home. Wow. I already met him and, you know, held his hand and everything. And uh, so so there's a lot of lot of doubt in that process. And um, I wrote about that in No Barriers because I wanted to show that point that it's not about always about climbing. Uh, in a way, that's the easy part. Wow. So one more question, Eric, this podcast is called the same 24 hours and it came out the idea that we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we do in those 24 hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness and success. So what is something that you do on a daily basis in your 24 hours that makes your life great? And then I start the Jeopardy music. Yeah. Do, 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 do. <laughs> well, I think for me, I, I, I'm pretty addicted to working out. Just, I have to do something physical every day. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and weirdly, it becomes addicting, uh, sure. which is a good thing. I figure if you're going to be addicted to something, you might as well be addicted to fitness. That's true. So I, 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 I'm lucky, I'm fortunate that I get to work out sometimes two times a day, three times a day. Um, and then I, I also um, uh, try to spend time with my family. To me, uh, my uh, daughter just went off to college, and my son uh, is uh, playing soccer. So uh, try to get to all his games and try to try to be a good dad, even though that's hard with teenagers. Because a lot of times when you try to engage them, they just grunt answers back at you. <laughs> but so I, I think a lot about that these days. How to every day how to be a better parent and you know in that little precious time half an hour before school and uh 
time that he's not doing his homework or we're sitting around the dinner table. Like how do I make the best of those times? Cause they're, they're, they're fleeting. They are. They're so fast. My kids are almost 10 and almost 11. And it, it seemed like when they were two and three, that that period would never end. It was so hard, but now I just want to stop it. <laughs> I just want time to stop. Cause it went so fast. It, yeah. it goes so fast. Yeah, I um, my daughter went off to college my freshman her freshman year, and I was so happy. Like, hey, it's time for her to get out of the house. She was kind of getting sassy the last six. <laughs> I guess that's a kid's way of breaking away, you know. And I was just like, good riddance. Time for her to leave, you know. And <laughs> then uh, the next morning, I'm working out on my stationary bike, and I just this sort of crushing thing, depression, sort of hit me so hard, and I thought a stage of my life is over. And my wife's really good because she's she knew it and she got me out on a swim. We swim across this beautiful lake up in the mountains and did this nice walk in the mountains. And that sort of, I guess, began the process of renewing me and my soul. Um, but, um, and helped me put it in perspective, but yeah, it, it, I definitely needed a little, little renewal that day. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time. I will post the links to your book and the, no Barrier Summit, and I look forward to seeing all the great things you got coming on your messy map. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and I hope that people will join us October 5th and 6th, uh, nobarriersusa.org. You can sign up for the summit. It's free. We uh, have sponsors paying for the whole thing. So uh, registering is no barrier to the process. So, yeah, I hope yeah, to see you awesome. there. Very awesome. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.